0: Are we ready?
1: Yes, go right ahead.
0: Good afternoon, and welcome to uh, our virtual ambassadors roundtable this afternoon with uh, recently uh, 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 departed from office, uh, ambassador to the Organization uh, for Security and Cooperation in Europe, OSCE in Vienna. Jim Gilmore. Uh, It's my pleasure this afternoon to introduce Jim to the members of the council and the members of the uh, Academy of American Diplomacy who are attending this afternoon uh, and to get our discussion rolling. Uh, In many ways, for those of us especially who are in the Washington DC area, uh, Jim Gilmore needs no introduction. uh, Having uh, served as Attorney General of Virginia and then as the 68th governor of Virginia from 1998 to 2002. During the last year of which term, he also served as chairman of the Republican National Committee. Uh, Jim Gilmore is a native Virginian who earned his Bachelor of Arts and Juris Doctor from the University of Virginia and rose uh, to those statewide offices from being a county prosecutor and has been a prominent attorney Uh, in the Washington area and in Virginia uh, uh, between his time as governor and his recent tour as ambassador uh, to the OECS, uh, I'm sorry, OSCE, pardon me, in uh, Vienna. Uh, Jim, let me turn the floor over to you. We're looking forward to your uh, uh, acquainting all of us with the main issues that you faced during your years uh, in Vienna uh, representing us
1: great well phil thank you very much and i think that i can be heard can i not everything's okay well uh, i'm pleased to have a chance to address the the council of American ambassadors today and also those who are coming in from the academy we are very grateful for that uh, that opportunity uh, i'm going to say a few words about uh, the OSCE because uh, it's not as well known i think as some of the other organizations all the countries of course have bilateral ambassadors and even the United Nations and some others like the European Union, but it is an absolutely vital organization. And I was very honored to be uh, nominated uh, by President Trump to serve as ambassador and to be confirmed by the United States Senate uh, on a consent vote. So I'm very happy about uh, all of that. Uh, On the other hand, now that the uh, election is over and uh, President Biden has won it is within his prerogative to change all the ambassadors. uh, And he has chosen to in fact, uh, uh, recall all political ambassadors worldwide. And that swept me in uh, as well. So uh, while I'm happy to be back home in Virginia and happy to be here uh, talking to you, uh, I also, uh, Roxanne and I were very pleased to be in Vienna, Austria working on behalf of the United States at the uh, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Uh, I'm going to start by just saying a few things, and I'm going to try to get through this uh, within about 20 minutes so that that, uh, members can ask any questions and we can have a a bit of a dialogue. The first thing that I want to do is I want to reassert to people the importance of Europe. Now, in World War II, this was well understood. Franklin Roosevelt picked Europe and the German uh, threat as the primary threat, and I believe that that issue remains uh, to this day. Uh, Europe is absolutely essential to the national interests of the uh, and security national security of the United States and now having been there for almost two years I can assert, I can assure all of you all that uh, that it is a vital interest for the for the United States. I say this because right now people in the US are only interested really in domestic issues and the impeachment and the, the the back and forth with the politics. If they turn their attention at all to foreign policy, it seems they're only really thinking about China. And that's okay, because that is the long-term uh, challenge to the United States. But to ignore Europe and to leave it on its own to carry out its own devices is a, a certain, certain mistake uh, for the United States if we, if we make that mistake. Now, very quickly, the OSCE began back uh, during, the, during the time of the Cold War. Uh, It was the Council for Security and Cooperation. It then uh, mutated into the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. It was all established through the Helsinki Accords and the final act that was uh, an agreement that was reached between most of the major all the major powers of Europe, uh, led by the United States, Britain, France, uh, Germany, and uh, of course, Russia. Uh, Leonard Brezhnev was anxious to try to preserve the Russian empire. And so he wanted to have an agreement uh, that there would be territorial integrity of all of the satellite countries. The West, on the other hand, wanted to uh, place an emphasis on human rights, uh, territorial integrity to be sure, but especially emphasis on democracy, openness, human rights, transportation of people, openness, and the opportunity for Western values to seep into the East. In the end, when that was uh, all over with, as we all know, the West won that bargain uh, because what ended up happening was the people of Eastern Europe would no longer put up uh, with an authoritarian Russian rule and admit ultimately the collapse of the uh, Soviet Empire and the Soviet Union itself. That was the essential trade-off though. And of course, also uh, also a result of that trade-off was the ultimate reunification of Germany. Uh, The OSCE structure Just to talk to you about that, I I remind everybody that this is 57 countries. It is all of Europe, including the Baltic States, the Scandinavian States, all the uh, European countries we think about, all the Southern countries, including Turkey, Azerbaijan, Armenia, and a variety of other countries. And then it goes out into Central Central Asia also with all these Turkmenistan and Tajikistan and Kazakhstan uh, and uh, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, Uzbekistan, all these are in the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, as well as Canada and the United States. Uh, So that is the structure. Once a week, all the ambassadors meet in the Hofburg in downtown Vienna, the historic Hofburg, and meet in in a Congress down there every Thursday called the Permanent Council. At that Permanent Council, uh, all the countries state what they think is important. They talk, they react to speakers that are brought in by the chairperson, but then they also have the opportunity to address issues that they think are important to the national security of of Europe and indeed the the entire world. Uh, Then once a year, there's a ministerial council where the foreign ministers all meet in conclave and pass resolutions, which then become the rules of the road, if you will, for the OSCE and for the geopolitics of Europe and the Northern Hemisphere. The chairperson in office rotates once annually Uh, When I started, it was Slovakia last year. When I was doing most of my work, it was Albania. And the chairperson in office, Iglu Husseini, and I developed a very close working relationship. Just as I was leaving, the new chairperson in office is now Sweden. Uh, uh, One of the controversies this year has been the appointment of the big four. The big four administrative people in the OSCE are the secretary general, uh, the head of ODEER, the Office of Human Rights and Democracy, Uh, the uh, representative for the freedom of the media and the high commissioner on minorities that became highly controversial. They were all tossed out last year. And I remind everybody that you have to have a complete consensus in order to do anything at the OSCE. That's described as people as having a challenge. People lose faith in the OSCE because of that consensus rule. I don't agree with that. Having been there, if you, you can negotiate compromise and reach agreement on anything, that is a powerful statement on all parties everywhere, all throughout the Northern Hemisphere, that there are certain rules of the road that we should maintain. And in fact, those big four four were appointed. The OSCE has 13 field missions across the entire area, mostly in the Balkans and in Central Asia. They have a special monitoring mission in Ukraine Ukraine right now uh, to monitor that conflict that's going on there. This is the only forum right now where Russia and the United States participate head to head because uh, they don't really participate in NATO anymore. They don't like the European Union as yesterday's headline demonstrated, but they do participate in the OSCE because they have the security of knowing that it's a consensus organization. This makes it a vital communication ability. Now, the United States mission to the OSCE. President Trump uh, has often been uh, criticized and uh, said they did, that we don't like to deal with multilateral organizations but the truth is that the US was up to its eyebrows in this multinational organization and I was as ambassador. This is in accordance with America's national security strategy, which I recommend all of you all pull up on the internet and read, particularly with respect to the involvement with multinational organizations, which encourages uh, complete organizational participation so that uh, authoritarian countries don't take them over. So the United States is very, uh, is very uh, involved Secondly, we, uh, there's been a lot of talk about how President Trump was very soft on Russia. I can promise you we weren't at the United States mission to the OSCE. We were challenging Russia every week in our public statements and specifically on Crimea and denying that the Crimea was in fact successfully uh, annexed and saying that we would not recognize it and standing very strong against Russia's impropriety and incursions and malign activities all throughout the region. Uh, the, the idea that uh, America uh, first uh, has been derided a great deal, uh, but actually we took it to mean that it's not America only, that if the United States' interest could be furthered by its cooperation with uh, particular allies, that's what we wanted to do. And in fact, uh, that's what we did. Uh, but we held our allies accountable, of course, as you would expect, and they, us. That's what sovereign states do. My goals were number one, uh, to shore up our allies and to be friendly and warm with our allies. And we've developed a particular special relationship with uh, the ambassador from the United Kingdom and those two countries, that country. But we also met with the quad every week, the quad being Britain, France, the United States and Germany. These ambassadors developed a very close bond and worked together on many of the uh, international issues. So. Uh, these were the, uh, the uh, approaches that we were taking. Uh, we did. Uh, however, there was a, I'll give you an example of, of a difference. When the special monitoring mission, which is there in uh, Ukraine to monitor that conflict that's going on there and to try to keep a lid on it, ran out of money, there was sort of an assumption that if you just shook the tin cup at the United States, we'd put all the money in. As the ambassador, I basically demanded that our allies put up money also and support our interests, all of our mutual interests. And therefore some countries began to contribute money to OSC's vital projects that never had really done anything before other than pay their dues. This I think is an accomplishment for the United States. Um, And uh, we also uh, were able to connect with Eastern Europe and with uh, the Balkans and with the Baltics uh, in very close order and uh, paid some attention on those security issues. The United States mission focused a great deal on human rights and human liberties, as well as democracy. There was a Vitaly Skolyov, who was an American taken hostage, if you will, in Belarus during that recent breakdown. We negotiated very closely with Belarus and made it very clear that we could not continue to work with Belarus unless our, and the American hostage was let go. This is in line with my philosophy, which is an American overseas, ought to have the protection of his American citizenship anywhere in the world. Likewise, we also met with Svetlana uh, Tehanskoskaya, uh, the leader of the opposition in Belarus. We have called every week for the release of uh, Maria Kolesnikova, who is now at this moment while we speak being held incommunicado in prison in Belarus. The Americans however stated their position on this and therefore we stand for what's truth and what's uh, right. Uh, the we did some additional new initiatives, but I want to hurry along through this so we can get to Q&A. We're almost out of my 20 minutes or so. We also at OSCE, the United States, changed our finances. We have a great deal of money that, uh, has, that the Congress gives us in order to participate in international affairs in the European and Asian sphere. We have a lot of things that we can do, but it used to be that the uh, U.S. Embassy just The OSCE embassy just doled out $25,000, $30,000 to all the different projects when everybody came with their handout. I stopped doing that. Instead, we began to focus on the most vital programs for the American national interest and then put big money behind it in order to get results on behalf of the taxpayers of the United States. That is a change that I'm very proud of. Uh, And then also we appointed key Americans in accordance with the National Security Strategy including an American now in charge of the terrorism issues, among other projects, and we put money behind the terrorism program. These are all the priorities of the United States, which we were able to pursue through the ambassadorship. Now, I will close pretty quickly now by saying something that I want to emphasize to my fellow ambassadors here. Europe is not quiet. It is a continent, a Eurasia, that is highly tense. Uh, My opinion is it's because of the dissolution of the old Soviet empire. And as a result of that, people are breaking out. You're not seeing anymore any argument about Poland and Romania and Hungary and Bulgaria. Instead, you're seeing arguments about uh, Belarus and about these other places like Georgia and Moldova. I remind you all that the Russians are occupying through military force now, East Ukraine. They purport to have actually conquered and annexed the Crimea which we do not recognize. They have soldiers right now in Georgia. They have soldiers in Moldova. They have, uh, they have been in support of the dictatorship in Belarus. And finally, there is an ongoing conflict that is going on as a ceasefire right now, but believe me, it's not quiet. And that is the Ar- Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict in the South Caucasus over Nagorno-Karabakh. That has been a real honest-to-goodness war and something that the OSCE has been engaged in through its special mission and its co-councils of the United States, Russia, and France to try to bring a ceasefire and to uh, to, uh, keep it participating in. So I wanna warn you, don't think of this place as the Eiffel Tower and the Tower of London and a nice trip along the Rhine. This is a very dangerous place Europe right now, largely because of Russia's push and pull constantly. We see it reflected at OSCE. So I'll close by just saying this, The agreed upon rules of the OSCE is democracy and human rights, territorial integrity, uh, self-determination, which is exactly the way Germany was reunited. All that is under attack right now, and it's being under, it's being reflected through the OSCE. The Azerbaijanis now say, well, you know, you've got to, you know, forgive us for attacking and taking this land from Armenia, although Armenia may or may not have been entitled to it. But what they basically say was well, doesn't matter. We're not negotiating anymore. There are now facts on the ground. The Russians tell us all the time about Ukraine. There are now facts on the ground. It's the, the, the authoritarian countries are challenging the rules that set down in the Helsinki Accords and the final act. American stability in the OSCE is essential to maintain this. And in a larger sense, it is the debate that we're going to have now in the future, for the future of the world. It'll be reflected in the Pacific also. But uh, believe me, it's being uh, argued about right now in Europe. Are we going to have a future of democracies, freedoms, people having the ability to elect their own government, to be free from the knock on the door at night, free from torture? Or are we going to have something entirely different? The OSCE is an essential bulwark that argues these matters out, reflects the allies, reflects the bright principles, and United States participation is essential to the stability, not just of the organization, but to Europe as a whole, and indeed the world. So, Phil, thank you very much. Those are my remarks. Well, Jim,
0: thank. Let's make sure we're unmuted here. We are, Jim. Thank you very much for those uh, for those observations uh, and uh, a, a tour d'horizon of your accomplishments and your priorities while you were ambassador to the uh, uh, OSCE. Uh, Let me remind everyone who's participating uh, that you can ask questions of Ambassador Gilmore uh, by clicking on the Q&A button on your screen. If you mouse over the edge of your screen, depending on what kind of computer you're using, uh, if you're on a PC like I am, it appears at the bottom of the screen. If you're on a Mac, I understand it appears at the side of the screen. Uh, Click on Q&A and type in your question. And I will read them out uh, as they come in to Jim Gilmore. But to get our conversation going, uh, uh, maybe I could start uh, Ambassador Gilmore by asking you if you could expand a little more on just what the OSCE has been able to do uh, uh, with respect to uh, Eastern Ukraine and the uh, uh, the occupation there uh, by proxy, well, disguised Russian and proxy uh, troops. The OSCE maintains um, two, uh, uh, I gather, sort of choke point observation posts uh, north and south Mm -hmm. of that Donbass region, Uh, but I'm not entirely clear on what they're able to accomplish. Uh, You could, I'm sure, enlighten
1: us. Well, first of all, uh, Phil, let, let's remember what foreign policy really is. It's got a lot of instruments that it can, <coughs> that it can use, uh, but diplomacy is one of those instruments. Another is, of course, military force. Uh, if the United States was prepared to use military force, <coughs> <excuse> me, <coughs> then we would have a different result. But right now, the purpose of diplomacy is to communicate to people what they can and they cannot do and then also to supply that with appropriate military force uh, as necessary. There's been a real worry here uh, that the Russians would in in fact uh, go beyond those uh, areas of Eastern Ukraine and try to take over all of Ukraine and eliminate that sovereign country. But on the other hand, uh, by going to the OSCE and asserting the principles that we do and by strong American participation and by drawing in our allies in a similar position, and they also are independently strong on these issues, you're communicating to the Russians that if they go too far, that they're liable to end up in a general conflict in Europe. I don't think the Russians want a general conflict in Europe. Uh, I think they would like to avoid that. So I think they're always watching to see if they can get something for nothing, whether or not that they can continue to move while the West will be passive and allow them to do it. The diplomacy that goes on the OSCE uh, communicates that. Uh, but then in addition to that, uh, the OSCE also has uh, major field missions that are out in, the, in countries that are emerging. Uh, for example, the, the Central Asian countries that are emerging democracies and they want to be independent. Uh, the OSCE goes out there and puts an actual field presence into those areas. That's true also uh, for the Balkans. With respect to the uh, special monitoring mission, that is a very major monitoring mission of several, uh, well, it's, it's been as high as I think 1,200, but it, uh, at least at this point in the pandemic, several hundred people who patrol that area, that border. Uh, we don't actually want to call it a border, that line of contact between uh, East and West uh, Ukraine. They monitor it, they watch it, uh, they report on it every day. They give information on the ceasefire and whether it's holding, and if it's not holding, where the ceasefire is being violated and by who. Now, what does that do? They're not carrying guns. They're not the 101st Airborne. They're not gonna go in and, and put a stop to this, if you will, but what they are doing is casting a light and shining a light on the conflict in Ukraine. Therefore, not only is it an early warning if there's the mobilization of troops, but in addition to that, it discourages improper behavior and activity. So The OSCE is a monitoring uh, mission there. Uh, they're the only organization that has a monitoring mission. The EU is not there. NATO is not there. The Russians won't stand for NATO. They, they consider them an adversary. They don't particularly like the EU either, as you can see from the recent headlines, but they have cooperated to the extent that the special monitoring mission is permitted to act in Ukraine.
0: Thank you for that. Uh, we have a question from one of our uh, audience members, Donna Imadi, uh, and uh, I'll go share Donna's question with you, Jim. Uh, could you expound on the challenges you perceive the U.S. faces in being influential within the OSCE, emerging out of this era where we have seen a lessened U.S. dependency on influence and involvement? I'm giving you her, her expression as she gave it. Uh, how do we reestablish our influence in this critical organization and region, and what are the challenges?
1: Uh, Donna, all I can tell you is the reality that, that I experienced there as the United States ambassador. Uh, first of all, we, I, we were a little late to the game. We didn't get there until the middle of 2019. But uh, as a former governor, as the United States ambassador, uh, I was given complete respect at OSCE. And in fact, I believe my, the United States voice that I was given at the permanent council meetings was respected and closely listened to. Furthermore, when we attacked on, on these uh, fundamental issues, when we attacked on the arrest of uh, protesters, if you will, in Belarus, and they're probably doing it now with respect to, uh, to Russia, we were listened to. All the countries of Europe were waiting to see what the United States was going to say which of course signals what the United States might do uh, which is a, a warning sign to our adversaries and a strengthening of uh, of our allies. Now we have, we've done specific things, for example when the anti-tank weapons, the uh, Javelin missiles were put into Ukraine, that was a, a clear signal that Russian tanks would not just simply roll across the plains of, of Ukraine unopposed. The United States uh, took that kind of initiative. That's not an OSCE initiative. In the OSCE, you're exercising real diplomacy. If diplomacy works, you don't ever see tanks or, or troops move because the warnings are all there, the information is all there. And uh, as a result of that, the trigger is not pulled. Furthermore, uh, and this is important, uh, our allies uh, look to the United States for that respect and, and stability. You had, let, me, let me say this, Donna. I believe this is probably true at the U.N., although I haven't been there, but I can tell you at OSCE, the United States voice is always the biggest one in the room. That means you have to be respectful. You have to be respectful of our allies, particularly the United Kingdom, and you have to understand what their interests are as well, and you accommodate that. And where you can cooperate and do something that the United States can do to help them, they understand it and they appreciate it because they see it very materially. What can we do? I think that uh, the the U.S. is in a position to do exactly what I thought needed to be done. Number one, shore up our allies. Number two, reach out to the, the the other countries that want to be independent and pull them west. For example, like uh, like uh, uh, Hungary, for example, and Poland, which have been uh, roundly criticized, but they want to participate on the on the Western team if they have that opportunity and the U.S. Can, can accommodate that and pull them west instead of making them, forcing them east. Uh, so the, the, uh, the, the third thing was to always watch the Russians and restrain them uh, through our diplomacy. And then uh, fourthly, uh, we did, uh, uh, we spoke directly to the Russian people by translating everything that we did and said as Americans into Russian and then communicated that in through social media, which I'm confident, in fact, I know for a fact, was being heard in Russia and beyond. And then finally, a lot of public diplomacy, hopefully with uh, Western and media as well. These are political things that you do, not military things. But I assure you, Donna, the United States remains the most respected and biggest player in all international organizations. I can speak from experience.
0: Uh, Jim, we have a a further question uh, that uh, um, uh, uh, approaches this from a different angle. Can you speak to the skills you developed as a governor that allowed you to be a successful ambassador? Uh,
1: The the answer is that the the political experience uh, that I was able to acquire over a lifetime Uh, was vital uh, to this ambassadorship. Maybe it's not vital in some countries and some assignments. Uh, In fact, much of the bilateral work is consular and and I understand that. There's no consular work at the OSCE. It's all political. This is all geopolitics. It's all arms control. It's all uh, geopolitics Uh, and that is uh, politics. (laughs) That's all it is actually. So the, the skills that you learn as a politician by being able to discern the intentions of people and then what you need to do in reaction to that in order to achieve your policies are an essential political skill. Now, uh, those were acquired over time. When I first was elected uh, a prosecutor back in my uh, home county, I didn't know nothing about politics much, but uh, well, I knew something because I'd been involved even as a youth politician, but not really, I was learning my, the ropes, but then as I climbed the ladder through attorney general and governor, you acquire bigger and bigger skills and, and stronger and stronger adversaries. Uh, so as a result of those skills, you, you it is essential at least for this ambassadorship. And frankly, I think most ambassadorships because the bilateral ambassadorships are political also. Now, let me just a word about this. Uh, I want everybody to understand that uh, I came into this brand new And my experience with the State Department career people was superb. I think they're excellent people, excellent trained, well experienced and completely cooperative and more importantly than that, loyal. I suspect that if we talked in politics that many of them probably wouldn't have liked President Trump but they were completely loyal because that's what the constitution demands. So I really liked them a lot on the other hand Career diplomats don't always get the political skills that you get by coming up through politics, by participating in politics, by even being a donor and understanding how you want to make your investments in politics or participating in business and building something in in the capitalist system. These are different skills than career diplomats. So I think the two work in great harmony. But I will say this. I believe that uh, if you uh, don't send somebody with political skills to OSCE, you're doing a disservice to the people of the United States.
0: Um, uh, Before getting to uh, a further question, uh, Donna, thank you for a fantastic answer. (laughs) Um, uh, Turning to... uh, Uh, Belarus, uh, a uh, nation uh, that belongs to OSCE and that uh, has been uh, recently uh, on a little bit of a knife edge with its neighbor, Russia, um, uh, where self-proclaimed President Lukashenko uh, has been under pressure from Moscow to accommodate more and more Uh, to coordination with Russia militarily, et cetera, and where he's an obvious violator of the democratic norms that are supposed to be practiced by um, OSCE members, but where at the same time, he seems to be doing a delicate uh, balancing act or walking a tightrope between trying to accommodate Russia, given that he is a dictator, uh, and yet trying to preserve uh, a modicum or some measure of Belarusian independence. How is Belarus being dealt with these days in the OSCE?
1: Uh, when, when I got to uh, Vienna, uh, I tried to look around and I said, where can the United States do something fresh and new that would be different, uh, where we could advance American interests? And I actually picked out three countries that I thought were uh, useful, uh, to, to pursue. Uh, and those three countries were Uzbekistan, Serbia, and Belarus. And the reason was because uh, Belarus had an interest in uh, trafficking in persons. The United States has an interest in trafficking in persons. We have a whole ambassador just for that issue. OSCE is focused on trafficking in persons, which is a fundamental real problem all throughout the Eurasian area and in Europe. So uh, we found a common ground. And last year we teamed up in the ministerial decisions to, to try to offer a proposal on trafficking in persons. All of a sudden you had this funny couple of Belarus and the United States working together. And so all through the year we worked together and we, we agreed we were gonna really do something that was going to help people on trafficking in persons. And by the way, it was gonna help Belarus because they have a lousy track record as far as the United States Congress is concerned it was all going to be something that was really good. Then all of a sudden the country blew up. And uh, what's really going on is this. Phil, and uh, to, to your answer, I believe it's in the interest of the United States for any country, particularly Belarus, to be a democracy. Democracies that are accountable to the people are probably not going to end up being enemies of the United States. So that's in our interest. At the same time, it'd be really easy for Belarus to simply be occupied by the, by the Russian army, they already have some troops in Belarus, and to simply draw that country back into the old Russia. I don't think Belarus wants to do that, but they're not particularly anti-Russian, they just are anti-dictatorship. The, the people there don't like Lukashenko because he's a dictator. He, on the other hand, doesn't want to actually be a little brother to Vladimir Putin, so it's a really peculiar situation. But we get to do lots of things at the same time too, the United States. So we are, not only was I pursuing a joint program on trafficking in persons, we also were condemning the attacks on the civil protesters. We were meeting with the leadership, as I said, of the civil protesters and supporting them. Uh, So uh, I happen to believe that in the long run, that Jefferson was right, that uh, people want to be free. They're going to be free and I think we're gonna be okay uh, in, in the long run. I'll just tell you one quick story. When I met with uh, Svetlana and, uh and she and I met, which everybody knows, and not only me, but the other allies, we met with her too. We all met with her and everybody knows it, including the Russians. One thing she said, well, I mean, they'd love to have us go ahead and send in the army and, and try to protect them. But we're not going to do that. That's not what America is going to do or any of the allies. But what we can do is stand for what's right. And the protesters, some of whom are exiled and some of whom are in jail and some of whom are in the street in Belarus, will tell you that American and Western statements on their behalf and the, the uh, standing for what is right with them is vitally important to them their biggest fear is that we will forget them. And at OSCE, we don't forget them.
0: Great. Let me encourage, if I could, uh, the members of our audience to take advantage of the chance to ask Ambassador Gilmore further questions. Uh, While waiting for those to come in, let me pose one uh, for you, uh, Jim, as well. Turkey is another NATO ally that uh, uh, is, uh, well, problematic in the fold, uh, uh, Erdogan's determination to, uh, uh, steer his country in a sort of Islamist direction, uh, and, uh, the increasing, um, I guess you could say lack of respect for, uh, fundamental freedoms and uh, uh, basic democratic rights that we've become accustomed to in the West and that Turkey is straying from, that's, that's a major problem and should be within the purview of the OSCE. And of course, Turkey's problematic posture is making it all the more susceptible to Russian overtures. Um, this, you know, especially since Turkey occupies a piece of strategic real estate that Russia has coveted for centuries. Um, How is the OSCE dealing with the problem of Turkey in, you know, in Europe and frankly in NATO?
1: Well, uh, first of all, uh, the uh, ambassador from Turkey during the time I was there, uh, Ingen Soysal, and I were very close, as a matter of fact. We were personal friends and our families were personal friends. But Engen was a very strong advocate on behalf of his country, as were all the other ambassadors at at OSCE. They stood up for their own country's sovereignty and their own national interests. The challenge of diplomacy, and particularly at a multilateral like this, is the constant interaction that goes on between the countries through their ambassadors, all the time on a a 360, all the time, 24/7 basis. So Engen and I were talking, but we were watching Turkey. The challenge for Turkey is, is a couple. Number one, they're not great enthusiasts of the civil uh, freedoms agenda and democracy agenda uh, that OSCE and the United States uh, stand for. They're not particularly happy about that. And therefore, when those issues emerged through resolutions, through decisions and so on at OSCE, they were usually a problem. But on the other hand, usually it, it sort of ended up uh, working, working out. I wouldn't worry too much about some union between Turkey and Russia, I wouldn't worry about that very much. I think the Azerbaijan-Armenia uh, war shows you exactly what that's all about. And that is that the Turks supported the Azerbaijanis militarily. The Azeris Alger- the actually conducted themselves in a full military NATO environment. And that's why they beat the uh, Armenians so badly. Uh, but the Turks, I think, expected to see a great deal more influence uh, in the South Caucasus as a result, and I believe they have it. In fact, I believe that the reason that the Russians intervened and demanded a ceasefire militarily, and they put peacekeepers there, was because of the Turkish uh, interaction in that war uh, that was going on. And, of course, uh, part of their duty is to protect Armenia also. So that is a direct conflict point that at present is, is a ceasefire but I assure you, nobody's real happy with that uh, right now. Uh, so uh, Turkey, the real issue with Turkey is uh, is less Islamist. I wouldn't worry about that because uh, we have plenty of Islamic countries in the OSCE that we interacted with. Uh, all the Balkans, for many of the Balkan states are are uh, Islamic. Uh, Albania is, and one of our closest friends and allies is Albania. Uh, but I will say this, I've noticed that there are a lot of countries in the OSCE that are suspicious of Turkish expansion or influence. Now, why would that be? If you just look at the history, you know, I mean, you will notice that Turkish influence went right all the way up to the United States residence at Turkenshan in Strasse in, in Vienna. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that militarily, I might add. So the history ain't great uh, with the Ottoman Empire. All the countries of Europe, uh, these countries forget nothing, Phil nothing. And believe me, they're very well aware of the, the risks of Turkish influence. But uh, Turkey was uh, a full participant. And they just didn't like the Office of Democratic and uh, Human Rights all that much. But we were able to manage to work it all through through diplomacy.
0: Okay, a further question uh, that's come up is, uh, is this. Uh, inside the EU, uh, uh, there has been as some of the countries of Central Europe uh, have uh, elected uh, more, well, we could say conservative or unorthodox or nationalistic uh, uh, leadership. Uh, One thinks of Poland and Hungary, but also the Czech Republic and even Austria uh, with the Kurtz government now. Um, There's been a kind of tension inside the EU about the unorthodoxies of these EU members, they uh, have by uh, are sometimes accused of undemocratic um, uh, steps, measures, innovations, compromising the independence of judiciaries or or other such things. Is this ever a discussion inside the uh, OSCE? And if so, how does that discussion unfold? Um,
1: the way that uh, this, this breaks down is this. Uh, the European Union participates. They're not a member because they're not a country, but the, uh, they are permitted uh, to speak when a member country defers to them and they always do. Usually the head of the EU country in this particular instance it was Germany, previously it was a different country. They defer to the EU and give the EU an opportunity to speak and to state the EU position. What I have observed, and and I want to reassure everybody on the call, the United States and the European Union are allies. We are allies. We're not in agreement on all issues. Every now and then the European Union would say something that I consider to be kind of wacky and we would uh, kind of push back on them as Americans. But by and large, uh, the United States and the European Union are allies, particularly in the Eurasian field and in the geopolitics of of the region. Now, that being said, the biggest challenge with the EU right now is, is that uh, was Brexit. When the uh, United Kingdom pulled out, uh, I want to say this, the closest relationship that I had in Europe was with the United Kingdom. The closest relationship, and that was deliberate. As soon as I got my feet on the ground in Vienna, the first thing I did was begin to build that relationship with, uh, the, with the United Kingdom. And their ambassador was under directions from London to accommodate that and we developed a very close working relationship. But the British have told me that they just couldn't stand all the bureaucracy and surrendering their sovereignty to this conglomeration of over 30 countries. They just couldn't stand it. And so they had to get out and be more independent. Now, likewise, I have heard comments from my contacts in Poland, Hungary, and other countries, in Eastern Europe, that uh, have uh, not that crazy about the European Union, not to mention, by the way, the Southern countries like uh, Greece and countries like that. Uh, they, they've got challenges because of this combined center, uh, center around Germany and France particularly, but highly bureaucratic uh, and so on. A lot of these countries are a little uncomfortable with that. They don't want to surrender their sovereignty at the end of the day to some conglomeration, polyglot organization like the European Union, which basically was set up to be an economic organization, not a political organization. But the more political they become, the higher the tensions get. I'll just tell you a quick story, then I'll stop my answer. I had a chance to visit with some representatives of some of the eastern countries, specifically Hungary and Poland, because they were getting such criticism in the American press. I said, gee, I gotta figure this out. You know, We don't, we don't talk to them as much as, as we do Germany and France and Britain. Maybe I'm gonna go find a little bit more about this. So I ended up talking to some, some representatives of those countries. And I said, what is your problem with the European Union? And they said, we just got out from under a socialist state. We just got out from under Russia, the Soviet Union. We just got our independence. We couldn't stand living in socialism. So we don't want to be a part of a new socialism, and that's really what they said. To you. They felt that the European Union was developing a, a large socialist type of uh, t- organization. They just didn't want to be a part of that. Now they still are because the trade opportunities and uh, and so on, the financial opportunities are quite great, uh, and so they don't want to leave the European Union. But they just don't want to be told what to do politically by them all the time. So those are my insights about the European Union. But we got along great. I, we had individual meetings filled during the week with a number of countries. We always met with Britain. We always met with the Quad. We always met with Ukraine. We always met with the European Union. And we usually also met with a, a couple of other countries as well. Uh, but uh, but uh, we always met with the European Union and they are our close allies.
0: Uh, great, thank you for that answer. Uh, interestingly, The last mission that the Council of American Ambassadors was able to mount for a number of our members uh, uh, before the pandemic shut all this kind of activity down uh, was a mission to Baltic states. Uh, We also visited Poland, um, but uh, particularly in Estonia and Lithuania, we weren't able to get to Latvia because of scheduling limitations. Uh, we found, I think, uh, nations, peoples, governments that are increasingly nervous about their uh, Russian neighbor to the east and their intentions, of course, all that in light of what happened in the Ukraine, what's ongoing in the Ukraine. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about how the OSCE is, um, how, how the Baltic states play in it and how the OSCE is looking at the Baltic state's anxieties.
1: Well, as a side matter, I think that all of us in this business, everybody on the call and everybody in the State Department, everybody in the White House ought to be spending almost all their time trying to figure out Russian intentions. Because, you know, you're not quite sure really what their intentions are. Uh, It may be they're just trying to protect themselves. And so they want to have a buffer the way that they historically have done, or it May they be that they're self-aggrandizing and they are not happy unless they're in charge of other people, or you just don't know what is driving the policy. And I think that all of us on this call can spend an entire lifetime trying to figure all that out, particularly since they hide it pretty well. And also it changes from administration to administration, doesn't it, except that Putin's always been there, it seems like. Uh, But uh, with that being said, the Baltic states can't worry so much about that. They just want to make sure they maintain their sovereignty. And I believe me, they are fiercely sovereign. They are fiercely independent of Russia. And yes, they are watching all the time because they don't completely understand the intentions. And also the language that's used at the OSCE by the Russian ambassador is very unhelpful. Uh, he's attacking all the time, various places, and you're watching to see exactly what the Kremlin's emphasis is as it shifts from week to week, but they've been very critical of the Baltic states, which of course keeps them on their back foot and makes them uh, uh, quite nervous. So uh, all I can tell you is that uh, the the Baltic participation in OSCE is vigorous, Their, uh, their ambassadors are good. And I might tell you that I think, my personal opinion based on my limited experience is that some of the most superb diplomats in the world are placed at the OSCE by these other countries. And that includes the Baltic States, They're excellent diplomats. They protect their interests of their countries, they protect their sovereignty, and they're always engaged. However, let me also come back to an original theme that I, that I said here. They're always watching to see if the United States is around. They're always watching to see if the U.S. is around and whether the U.S. is strong and whether the U.S. is resolute and determined. And if they see that, they feel better then at that point they can exercise their diplomacy a little less reluctantly and a little less fearfully. And that goes not just for the Baltic states where they're all, all the way up there in that, uh, in that area uh, up there, but, but all the other countries as well. The United States presence provides stability in Europe. I assure you of that. And, uh, and I certainly hope that we continue to do that. Uh, you just
0: touched on the Russians' behavior in the uh, OSCE. Uh, and I, 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 your comment was brief, but it, it was fascinating. And it might be useful to use our last few minutes here together for you to talk a little bit more about that, because it emerges that you've portrayed the U.S. as, as um, if not the leader of the pack, certainly a very important player in the OSCE for the good, for the constructive purposes of the organization. but that portrayal of the Russian ambassador suggested that they might be a kind of uh, well, dare we say something like a black knight in this uh, in this uh, this round table organization. How, how do they really play their role?
1: Uh, well, uh, first of all, uh, also Canada is very important in this organization as well. I've, I've often said the United Kingdom are our cousins, but the Canadians are our brothers and sisters. And uh, uh, so they play an important role as, as well. You asked me about the Russians. The The relationship at OSCE is complicated, but at least you got a relationship. Uh, with all of the sanctions and the uh, expulsions of diplomats and the reductions of consulates, uh, there has been a reduction of diplomatic contact across the world with the Russians. Not so at OSCE. At OSCE, they have a full mission there, a very elaborate mission. And let me confess to you that I got to know the Russian representatives, the deputies, as well as the ambassador pretty well. And actually, my confession, Phil, is that I actually like them. Uh, I think they're they're, um, uh, good people and I like them. And I think they're very effective representatives of Russia. However, I don't, like, I don't like what Russia does. Uh, their their uh, behavior in international relations is brutal, is wrong in violation of the Helsinki Accords, in violation of the Final Act, and we hold them to account every day. We never give up. One time when I, when I was there, I kept saying to my staff when I was just learning the ropes, and I said, how can we go to the Permanent Council every week and complain about Crimea? Why do we do that? After all, they already know how we feel about it. Uh, why, why do we keep doing this? And the answer was, because if you stop, they'll notice. If you stop, they'll notice. And they'll figure that you've now moved on. And now you're ready to enter some other kind of negotiation, which they're always seeking advantage. Uh, I, I question very much this decision to go into Start this quick. Uh, this was an opportunity to maybe maybe address this, the Russian superiority in nuclear battlefield weapons, which now probably won't be addressed because of the American entering at the New START so quick. You always have to watch the Russians. They're always, they're very unique people and their uh, representatives are very determined and very deliberate. We were, uh, I hesitate to use the word yelling, but we were speaking across the table every week to each other uh, in this organization quite deliberately and uh, it is communicated back to Washington and it's communicated to Moscow. And that's how we begin to measure each other and to try to figure out whether there's strength, weakness or directions where we can work together. The direction that I had from Washington and that I set for myself was to restrain Russian aggression to the extent that I could and uh, that the United States could. But at the same time, President Trump asked us to seek out ways where we could try to build some relationships so we could find some common ground somewhere. And in some of these areas, we did find some common ground. Uh, but uh, that doesn't cause us to diminish our, our strong position with respect to the Russian foreign policy.
0: Thank you. That's uh, that's very insightful and, and intri- intriguing to be working in that kind of a context with the Russians uh, and keeping each other as it were on our toes. Uh, Ambassador Gilmore, I think we have come very close to the end of our time and I have no more questions from our audience. I'd like to thank you for making your time available and giving us such a thoughtful presentation on U.S. representation in the OSCE over the last several years. I'd like to thank our participants uh, for uh, tuning in as it were this afternoon and joining in this program. Uh, and to thank Kathleen and Jocelyn, the staff of the Council of American Ambassadors for putting the program together. It's been a pleasure. It's been insightful. And since you are joining the Council, as I understand it, welcome to our organization. I hope you'll have many, many years, as I have enjoyed, of of, of pleasure and reward from this uh, association. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you very much, Phil. It's been a, a real opportunity to represent the people of the United States and in, uh, in Europe.
0: Thank you. And with that, I think uh, Jocelyn is going to end our session. Thanks so much, Governor Thank and you, Ambassador. Thank you. Bye-bye.